Welcome to the Lawyerist Podcast with Sam Glover and Aaron Street. Each week, Lawyerist brings you advice and interviews to help you build a more successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are Sam and Aaron. Hi, I'm Sam Glover. And I'm Aaron Street, and this is episode 26 of the Lawyerist Podcast, a weekly podcast about lawyering and law practice. You can subscribe to the show in iTunes or using your favorite podcast app, or you can listen to it at lawyerist.com slash podcast. If you enjoy our show, we would really appreciate it if you take a few seconds and give us a rating in iTunes. So we recently published my new guide to computer security, about which Andrew Cabasso of Jurist Page says, check out this guide and secure your damn computers. Find out more and get it at lawyerist.com slash guides. And sponsoring today's podcast is Ruby Receptionists. Sign up for a free trial at callruby.com slash lawyerist, and Ruby will answer your phones for free for two weeks. All right, Sam. So we've gotten into this little podcast routine where we start each episode by chatting about some law practice link or article that we saw that's really fun. I don't have a law practice link I want to talk about today. Uh, I have something completely different and totally irrelevant, which is uh, one of my favorite bloggers, Felix Salmon, just wrote an article, which we will link to in the show notes to this show, uh, about how dudes should drink rosé. I, I don't think this is totally unrelated. After all, we just finished Brian Tannenbaum's three-part series on how not to embarrass yourself with a wine list. So, And does brosé not embarrass you? In a crowd of lawyers? Uh, I, I feel like we should get Brian's opinion on this, but uh, the video that we will enclose, I'm pretty sure Brian was actually in that video. <laughs> of Lumberjacks chugging rosé. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> uh-huh. I, I brought rosé to a party as a result of Felix Salmon's post, and uh, everybody turned their noses up, so I had no real men at that party, I guess. So I'm not going to lie. Since I read the article, I've bought half a case of it. I've been only ordering that at <laughs> restaurants. I'm pretty much hooked. <laughs> That's awesome. I mean, why not? Rosé is a simple wine. There's nothing frilly about it. You just drink rosé. It's good stuff. Yep. As the title says, all men should be drinking rosé this summer. It's like an elite version of Boone's Farm. <laughs> that is such a bad selling point. <laughs> but that's how it makes me feel. <laughs> it brings back all kinds of good memories. Is this where our podcast jumps the shark? Uh, it jumps the rosé, possibly. Uh-huh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, drink rosé. That's the lesson from this week. And this week's guest, which who has absolutely nothing in the world to do with Rosé, is David Latt, the editor-in-chief of Above the Law, and here is that interview. Hi, uh, my name is David Latt. I'm the founder and managing editor of Above the Law, a website covering the legal profession, and I'm also the author of a novel entitled Supreme Ambitions. Thank you so much for being with us, David. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, so I want to ask you about your novel. Uh, how how did you write a novel? <laughs> um, let's see. <laughs> I'm asking you the question uh, that a fellow writer asks, I guess, <laughs> not what uh, it's about and how to, all that stuff. So, uh, somewhat slowly, although perhaps not as slow as some people. I had the idea for this novel years ago, so in some ways. 
I've been, I was writing it for years. But in terms of, in terms of sustained work on it, maybe a year and a half to two years, uh, a lot of the work was done. I did a lot of the work on weekends. It's a little bit tough when you have a day job that involves so much writing and editing to do it in the evenings after you spent your whole day writing and editing. So I did a lot of work on the weekends. Uh, another thing I would recommend for lawyers who have, uh, who are aspiring writers is to give yourself some accountability. I think some lawyers, many lawyers have great stories to tell and just don't have the time to, uh, actually get them out. So what was helpful to me was every Monday I would send my editor a bunch of pages for him to look at and he didn't have to look at them right then, but I committed to sending him pages every Monday. So hmm. if you can commit to yourself, okay, I'm going to send my spouse, I'm going to send my friend a certain amount of pages every week, every two weeks and force yourself to write, uh, that can be very helpful. I think lawyers tend to work very well on deadlines. So uh, one of the things uh, that I've noticed about writers, uh, lawyers who, who aspire to be writers is that their knowledge of law and law practice makes them too wonky. And, <laughs> and I'm wondering, did you, did you find your way out of that or did you just pick a plot that allowed you to be as wonky as you wanted to be? I think I kind of split the difference on that. Uh, on the one hand, I wanted the novel to be fairly realistic. On the other hand, I knew that if it was too realistic, nobody would read it. So I did take a plot that allowed me to be somewhat wonky. Uh, but at the same time, I also took some liberties in terms of what would be realistic. So I kind of, I kind of went halfway. And the problem with that is... I think a lot of people did enjoy it and it worked well, but the problem is some lawyers will say, well, this thing wasn't realistic. And then other readers will say, well, there was a lot of law in this novel. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, it, it's it's tough to, to square that. Well, and I suppose you have years of blogging that has probably softened the <laughs> lawyer writer in you into something that is a lot more approachable to the average reader. Yes, uh, I, I think that's fair to say. I don't uh, I don't know the blue book as well as I used to, and that's probably a good thing. Well, I, I, I have, um, I was, you know, I was an English major and I've always thought of myself as maybe one day writing a novel, uh, but I'm trying to get used to the idea that I am a professional writer, even if I never write a novel, but you, yes. <laughs> you, you refuse to let go of the dream and that is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so the main thing I wanted to talk to you about today is, um, I've been, ha you know, I have lots of conversations with lawyers and, and people who want to sell things to lawyers. And uh, what's becoming increasingly obvious to me is that how different the world of small law, which we primarily cover on Lawyerist, and big law, which is what you primarily cover on Above the Law, how, how the gulf of difference between those two from how we get clients to the types of clients we have to the, the way our clients uh, buy services from us, it's, it just seems to me that there's such a big difference. And I, I kind of wanted to talk to you about the differences and similarities and what we think that implies for, I hate using the future of law, but let's say the near future of the profession and how, how it's changed over the last few years and how it's going to continue changing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, big big law firms. For this is just an example. Uh, my understanding is that most firms get business uh, with a, you know kind of a request for proposal process where they have to apply for the business and they have to set budgets and things like that. And and most small firms get business because it walks in the door. 
Yep, I think that's that's true. A lot of a lot of large firms might put out an RFP request for proposal. They might uh, bring in some of the firms they're most interested in and have a so-called beauty contest where these firms tout their uh, why they're the best firm for that particular engagement. Uh, at the same time, you could argue maybe it's comparable to when the individual client of a small firm or solo practitioner gets three names as referrals from a cousin who's a lawyer and then calls up all three of them to find out how do you charge, what's your expertise with this type of matter. So I think that there is that similarity in terms of clients wanting to find the best lawyer for their matter, somebody who is skilled and experienced and affordable. But yeah, that is a that is a big, big difference. Well, and most of those firms are competing for the same bunch of clients primarily, aren't they? Yes, a lot of them are chasing the Fortune 500 type companies, and and so it can be it can be very competitive. Where, where do you draw the line on on those firms that are realistically representing that same pool of, of probably a few? What I imagine are about a few thousand clients. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I think that. People would uh, might typically look at a lot of the influential industry rankings like the American Lawyers AmLaw 200 or the National Law Journal's NLJ 350. But the, I've, one thing I've found in talking to a lot of in-house lawyers at large companies is they are increasingly – I would say, willing to go beyond the usual suspects. As a lot of them have said at industry conferences and whatnot, they increasingly hire lawyers, not firms. Hmm. Uh, I think 15 years ago, you might have seen much more of a model where there there were a handful of firms who were almost like the outside general counsel to a given corporation. Whereas I think now the corporations feel very empowered to shop around and they might go to a boutique firm with expertise in a particular area instead of just going to the usual large firm they always go to uh, if they think that that boutique has the expertise. And is that a function of cost or expertise or both? I would say both. I think that since the Great Recession, some of the power in the lawyer-client relationship shifted more towards the clients. Mm -hmm. The firms were really hard up for work. They were willing to discount heavily. And I think also the in-house lawyers realized that to the extent they have lucrative assignments to dole out, they have a lot more power than they realized. So part of it's pricing. And then the second thing you mentioned, Sam, is part of it is expertise. Uh, In the past, again, this is somewhat anecdotal. I haven't seen the hard stats on this, but in the past couple of years, we've seen a lot of large firm lawyers leave to start their own small firms or to join boutiques. And so if you have the same expertise, often at a lower cost, because small firms often have lower overhead, uh, why wouldn't you go with that person? What What is all that overhead, actually? I mean, is it is it the luxury of the big firm and the downtown office space, or what's the difference there? A lot of it is. Uh, a lot of it is the huge uh, office space. Uh, some large law firms have very impressive art collections, which we've written about on Above <laughs> the Law. Uh, part of it also is staffing. Uh, large firms often have many more administrators. They have entire departments, word processing, technology, uh, whereas small firms might outsource a lot of that, so it's not on their payroll. The other thing is small firms, all, uh, large firms, uh, a.k.a. big law, 
they also have large groups of junior lawyers who, in many ways, they are paying to train because clients are increasingly pushing back on paying for first and second year lawyers. And sometimes we'll have in the engagement letter or retention letter, we're not going to pay for first or second year lawyers. So these are people who are on the payroll of the large law firm. They are earning $160,000 plus bonus, the going rate for a first year lawyer. And they're not necessarily generating that much revenue in their first year or two. They're basically just shadowing more experienced lawyers. Yeah, essentially. They're shadowing, they're doing grunt work, but they're not necessarily generating that much revenue. So they're part of the overhead calculus too. You know, my my sense from being um, mostly an outsider to that world is that the the partner, the traditional partner track is either changing or disappearing. And, you know, we have all this talk about non-lawyer ownership, but it seems to me that some of the bigger firms are actually starting to look a lot more like non-law firm businesses where, um, you know, they're hiring people to do the grunt work. They're outsourcing to find more efficiencies and they're adopting software and sometimes even developing their own software and systems to take over some of that work. What's, yes. What yep. does it look like for an associate right now? I think you're right, Sam. I think that the traditional model of work here for seven to 10 years, make partner. If you don't make partner, move on. That model is uh, is fading away. I think part of it is the partnership track is longer because given how law firm profits have been increasing over the past few years, making somebody a partner is in some ways a bigger economic decision. Mm-hmm. Uh, part of it is the firms are becoming a little bit stingier with spreading the wealth. And part of it is the firms are finding that they can often, the upper out aspect is eroding. They can keep talented lawyers on their payroll and just give them a different title. They can call them counsel. They can call them of counsel. They can call them senior attorney, what have you. And so in a lot of ways, large law firms are becoming more like multinational accounting or consulting firms where it's not just uh, owners, partners, and owners-in-waiting associates. You have a proliferation of titles. You might have staff attorneys who are doing a lot of document review uh, or a lot of uh, so-called grunt work. Uh, So law firms are shaking up their talent model a little bit. And in some ways, I think this could be good. Uh, there are more opportunities for people and you don't necessarily have to leave the firm after your seven or eight or 10 years are up. Uh, on the other hand, it does mean that it is harder and harder to actually become a partner, to become an owner and to have the full psychological investment that entails. And so here's kind of where, uh, I, I think one of the concerns of, you know, for small law is that if, if, Big firms are finally learning how to take advantages, uh, advantage of efficiencies and maybe even shave some of their overhead. Um, is there any chance that some of these big firms are going to start doing consumer-level law at scale? This is often what we hear about when it comes to non-lawyer ownership, but it seems to me there's no reason why uh, a, a big firm couldn't exercise its clout and just start uh, and build some software and make some investments and decide that they're going to start handling volume on you know small business or um, do some loss leader work for startups and things like that that, that really would take business away from uh, firms that are traditionally going to be representing those people. That's a very interesting idea. I think that I'm not sure it would necessarily happen in a major way. I think I have a couple of thoughts on that. One is that the large firms in some ways seem to be going in the opposite direction in terms of wanting to 
shed uh, some of their even pretty big but not gigantic clients hmm. because they're finding that there is a certain amount of administrative work associated with each new client. There is, of course, the issue of conflicts. So we recently published on Above the Law a memo from one large law firm asking people to essentially get rid of clients who did not generate a certain amount of revenue for the firm. So in some ways, the big firms are trying to go bigger. I think that you might see a couple of instances where big firms intrude a little bit onto small firm turf. One example you already mentioned where there are some large firms out there that are making available often for free documents for entrepreneurs, uh, startup companies. They just put them on their website. Uh, I think Cooley is one firm that's doing this. There are a couple of others. And I think perhaps that could erode market sh- market share for some small firms that were focusing on the tech sector. Hmm. But I think generally the big firms, at least the ones we follow on above the law, they, they seem to be trying to go bigger. Uh, so I don't know that small firms should be too worried just yet. That's interesting. Uh, you know, when I started out uh, uh, my solo practice, lots of my friends at big firms would say, oh, you know, every once in a while we get clients that aren't big enough for us and we're happy to refer those to you. But it turned out that for most of them, uh, you know, anything, and a $3,000 retainer was enough for their firm to take it. So I never really figured out what was small enough for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's tricky and it'll vary from, it'll vary from firm to firm. Yeah. And sometimes people will take a flyer on a small company thinking, well, maybe this will be the next Facebook, who knows? Sure. I know that makes perfect sense. And well, that's interesting. So, uh, because that's what I've always said is, you know, when you're faced with a, a glut on the market, like we've got, um, you, you basically have two choices. You can you can try and dive into the access to justice gap and lower your fees and increase your volume and efficiency, or you can go for the ultra high end where you people will always be willing to charge uh, or to pay four or five hundred nine hundred dollars an hour for somebody who is very clearly or at least has the reputation of being the best at what they do. Yeah, absolutely. And I think firms are trying to go for that higher-end market because they feel it is less susceptible to, you know, the D-word, disruption. Mm -hmm. Uh, They feel that the work that is, uh, you know, how to put it, that's kind of more, quote-unquote, commodity work could be more easily disrupted by technology or what have you. But if you're counseling multi-billion dollar companies on their public offerings or their uh, M&A work, it's harder to think, well, somebody's going to come along and invent technology for that. There are just too many moving parts. There's too much money at stake. And the lawyer fees compared to, heck, what the investment bankers are making, uh, they're a bit of a rounding error. So mm-hmm. I think a lot of firms are trying to go more up market. Whether they can succeed in doing that is another question. And does that, uh, I've read a little bit about the concern that the biggest firms are just going to get bigger and more powerful, and the not quite so big firms are really going to be facing a market they can't compete in at that point. And what might happen to them? Do they just split up into a bunch of sm- solo practices? Or Yeah, I think that, I think that in some ways, if I were to look at the future of the profession, I think small firms in many ways are going to be fine. And I think the multinational big law behemoths are going to be fine. I think the potential for danger exists for firms that are kind of in the middle. They are not big enough or uh, have a strong enough brand to command the Fortune 500 companies, but their overhead is too high for them to be appealing to individuals or even to small businesses. So I think those firms that are 
kind of in the middle and haven't figured out their strategy, they could face a lot of difficulties in the years ahead. And they may not be they may not have big enough business to be attractive as an acquisition for the bigger firms. Yes, exactly. So some of those firms might, as you were saying, break up into smaller firms. And some of them just kind of close their doors and the lawyers just lateral over to other firms, some small, some sure. big. But a lot of times they just kind of uh, break apart. What do you see as, uh, I, I just love throwing the word disruption around because uh, <laughs> it's become a meaningless word. But I mean, if you had to point to one or two or three things that have already been the most disruptive to uh, the the medium and big law world, what would those things be? Well, I think one would be e-discovery and just how that has been revolutionized both by outsourcing and technology. Uh, that is an area where law firms used to make tons and tons of money. They could bill out junior associates at a couple hundred dollars an hour to plow through documents. Whereas now, you can either have that done overseas or you can have it done through technology, uh, whether it's keyword searching or predictive coding or what have you. And that is a lot more cost-effective and there are studies that show that it's really just as accurate. So I think that has been a major driver of the decline in revenue for litigation that some large firms have seen. Uh, you can also apply to diligence. The process of due diligence for transactions has similarly been eroded. There have been a whole bunch of companies, some of which we've written about in Above the Law, that now specialize in streamlining that process too. So I think that the streamlining of document review and due diligence has been a has been challenging for uh, for large firms. So that that's certainly one of the things that I would put at the at the top of the list. The 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 old model of having armies of uh, document reviewers uh, pay, flipping through documents and coding them uh, does that mean that the offices have gotten a lot smaller and the sizes of the firms personnel wise have gotten smaller? Yes, somewhat. There have been a number of firms that have had fairly stable headcount uh, or even declining headcount despite stable or even increasing revenues. And I also would agree with you about the the issue of office space. A lot of firms uh, have been downsizing their spaces and have been moving to even changed floor plans. Uh, there have been a couple of firms that have been moving away from private offices even, that have been moving more towards a startup-y kind of open floor model or, uh, uh, or a model where you have some conference rooms on the sides, but a lot of people op work in a more open fashion or maybe only the partners have offices. Uh, so <clears throat> I think people, firms, are trying to be more efficient. And it's to their credit. I think that when the when the recession came around, a lot of firms were caught with very high overhead. And now, even though we haven't had another downturn, firms are already being proactive about pruning their expenses. It's also why we've seen a wave of support staff layoffs, I think, in the past couple of years. Firms are perhaps anticipatorily trying to tighten their belts in hey, case- Hey, you can type your own you know, documents for a change? Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> a lot of people, there are very few people now who are relying upon other people to to type their own documents. And heck, even with voice recognition software, you don't even need to do dictation that much. So are there any ways in which small firms and big firms are sort of converging, some similarities between the two practices? Yes, I think that one thing we've seen, a couple of trends we've seen actually, one is we've seen a trend of uh, partners at large firms leaving those firms to start their own practices. Uh, and I can, of course, tick off a whole bunch of those, but these lawyers feel they want to have more control over how they practice law and how they service their clients. Often they want lower overhead. 
sometimes they are in practice areas that the large firm doesn't necessarily fit well with. For example, IP lawyers who tend to represent plaintiffs in patent cases or trusts and estates lawyers where the T&E work doesn't have the same high margins as, say, M&A work. So a lot of these lawyers are leaving large firms and starting their own firms. And so I think that you can find a lot of the same people and the same talent at small firms as well as large firms. I think that's one way in which the two worlds are intermingling a bit more. I suppose that's a good way to offload your conflicts, too. Yeah, no, absolutely. A lot of times, well, uh, look at Boyce Schiller. That was started when David Boyce uh, had a conflict with one of Cravath's major clients. But there are a lot of other examples, too, uh, where you can dodge the conflicts issue by just having those folks spin off. And then on the small firm side, with the help of technology, they've been able to go toe-to-toe with a lot of the bigger players. For example, say you are trying to litigate a large commercial case against a large firm which has 10 lawyers on the project, well, you can turn to one of these outsourcing companies and they can essentially temporarily increase your capacity by making available to you a bunch of contractors or some technology that will enable you also to get a grip on those 2 million pages or what have you. So technology is in many ways leveling the playing field. And so as a result, some boutique firms are able to get the types of engagements that previously companies would only be comfortable giving to large firms. You know, so much of the change uh, at all levels is driven by cost. But one of the conversations we've sort of been having internally among the staff at Lawyerist is there's a there's a bottom there, right? Like, you know, there's all this excitement about um, limited license legal technicians out in Washington and stuff, but it's hard for me to imagine that their overhead is going to be substantially lower than a lawyer's or a a smaller solo or small firm lawyers. And I mean, what I'm wondering is at some point we're actually going to hit the bottom of cost, I think, uh, if, if as long as we're going to keep operating in offices, but what started this obsession with cost? I, All of a sudden, uh, the Fortune 500 woke up and said, whoa, we've been giving our lawyers way too much leeway to charge us whatever they want to? (laughs) I think part of it, I think a couple of things. I think it was a gradual uh, process. Uh, One thing I mentioned earlier was just the recession and that shift in pricing power. The second thing that uh, some surveys have borne out is in-house legal departments growing and to the extent that they can do a lot of the work themselves and don't need to hire outside counsel, they've been able to do that. So as a result, they might only go to outside counsel for the really heavy lifting because they now have the capacity to do a lot of the more uh, straightforward things uh, themselves. So they would say, well, if you do want to do this project that we would normally do ourselves, you have to give us a really good rate on it because otherwise, heck, we'll just do it ourselves. In, in uh, a way, there's a third player, right? It's it, it's not big law, small law anymore. It's big law, small law, and in-house, although yes. in-house primarily has cannibalized big law. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think uh, I think that's definitely a big big part of it. There is there is that that three constituency uh, relationship you describe. Hmm. Uh, and and then. It sounds like uh, you're saying there there isn't a whole lot of threat of uh, big firms deciding to take on volume work uh, at the consumer level. Um, and but what I, I think is also interesting is you know I recently talked to Brendan Kenny who works at a firm called Blackwell Burke here in the here in Minnesota, um, which I was surprised to find out recently only has twelve lawyers because uh, to all outside experience uh, uh, appearances it kind of functions like a big firm i think it's sort of one of those uh, litigation boutiques like you were talking about where it's almost a 
it's a small firm on a big firm model, which may be a new sort of a creature that I'm not sure I've seen much of before. Yeah, I think that in some that is a, a growing trend. I think there are a lot of firms out there that can handle the type of work that that previously used to go to large firms. It's interesting technology uh, can allow people to do all kinds of things. Even the issue of offices, uh, a lot you can have these so-called virtual law firms, which you guys have talked about and we've talked about, uh, where you don't necessarily need to have a fancy office. Uh, but I also agree with you that there is a limit on how low overhead can go. I think part of it is also a function of the high cost of legal education. If lawyers have these huge debts that they are laboring under, it's very hard for them to just kind of go out there charging people very minimal amounts uh, because they have to service uh, that debt, which is why working for these large firms is often so attractive for people who can get the opportunity to do so. They can make a big dent in their uh, educational loans. Well, and realistically, Wall Street firms aren't going to be moving to suburban Ohio. Yeah, I think also a lot of it is geographic, and geography still matters. Uh, even in this age of, uh, well, you know, here we are talking over Skype, but even in this age of technology, people like to occasionally have in-person meetings. And uh, for court hearings, uh, it, you have to be there generally. And, uh, you know, some of this is changing at the margins, and some people will let you participate uh, virtually, but uh, it still helps to be in a particular area. You know, speaking of law school, which is a, a big topic of its own, what what do you think are the chances that we see any kind of a significant dent in the cost of a legal education in, say, the next five years? Um, hmm. <laughs> I would think in the next five years, we will probably see what we've seen in the past couple of years, which is a slow deflation in it, maybe. Uh, I'm being a little optimistic. Uh, some schools have had increases in their nominal sticker price, but what they often do is they give generous, quote-unquote, scholarships to people, mm -hmm. which are essentially just reductions over that, that nominal sticker price. So it's hard to measure this because the schools don't release statistics on it, but uh, you hear about and you have the sense that the practical cost of going to law school is decreasing for many people at least as applications fall and schools get desperate to have students with desirable numbers so they can keep their rankings high in the U.S. News and World Report rankings. Uh, and you've have, you have had a couple of schools, which we've covered on Above the Law, that, which, that actually have uh, implemented either tuition freezes or tuition cuts. Uh, so, but they're not huge. They might be a couple of percentage points or they might just be a freeze. Uh, in, in terms of seeing some kind of slashing the cost in half or something, I don't think we're going to see that in the next five years. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's, there's a part of me that recognizes that, uh, the legal industry has, is in the middle of tumultuous change. Uh, you know, our value proposition was starting to look kind of screwed up, uh, <laughs> alongside of modern realities, but, but then I worry that what we're driving for when it, when we talk about change is, uh, you know, I guess I still have Atticus Finch in the back of my head that we are this dignified profession uh, and we are a profession, and I'm and I I don't love the idea of legal work being reduced to technical work, and uh, and I'm worried that you know some of the pressure that is happening on on the the industry but also on legal education is trending that way towards 
lawyers as technicians. And I guess I don't know how I feel about that or, or how risky I think that is. I agree with you. I share that concern. I think one thing that is a positive on that side is at the end of the day, what constitutes good judgment is a very hard thing to automate. And at the end of the day, that is in many ways what lawyers are looking, that what clients are looking for from their lawyers, whether in a litigation or transactional context. They want somebody who has good judgment. And it's very hard to teach a computer uh, good judgment. Look, can Watson play Jeopardy? Sure. Uh, can technology review documents? Sure. But if you're looking for somebody to say, okay, how is this regulatory agency going to look at this action? Or how is a jury of this type going to react to this kind of argument? It's it's hard. I think that technology can help lawyers exercise better judgment. They can show you okay, here's how this judge has ruled on this type of motion in the past. But at the end of the day, there has to be that exercise of judgment, which is still done by a lawyer and which is probably, at this point at least, too sophisticated and too complex to be done by technology, or at least that's my hope. So if you, maybe by way of closing, uh, we, could, we should uh, be more optimistic and talk about opportunities. Um, so if you had to name the opportunities for um, the world of small uh, solo and small practice, um, and then the world of big law, and then the world of just below big law. Um, where are the the opportunities, do you think? So, yeah, that's a great question. I think that for small firms, I think there is a lot of opportunity in figuring out how to, again, maybe this goes against what we were just talking about in terms of technology taking things over, but in terms of figuring out how can you automate your processes. It's a, it's very I've been doing some reading on this. It's very interesting to learn about how you can actually take certain uh, fields of practice, which often might involve similar transactions or uh, processes, and you can automate them. And you can create almost like a decision tree, kind of like a TurboTax, where a client can give information and the lawyer can then craft a document or a solution that just reflects what the client says. And I think that the small firms that are going to do well are going to be those that are very efficient and don't just reinvent the wheel every time, but have some way of uh, managing uh, that information. For big firms, I think it's actually very similar. I think those firms need to get better at and have the opportunity to improve their service and their efficiency a lot through knowledge management. Uh, it's a bit of a buzzword, but it's true. Uh, a lot of times you'd be shocked at when somebody needs a particular motion or a particular type of contract, they will just email all attorneys and say, has anyone ever worked on you know this type <laughs> of transaction involving this industry? Whereas really, there should be a database or there should be a person who that lawyer in need of advice can go to and say, look, here's what I'm looking for. What kind of templates do we have? And large firms, to their credit, have been making inroads on this. They've been hiring full-time knowledge management people. They've been adopting software that helps them do this. And so I think that is a big opportunity for large firms, figuring out, look, you have so much of this information already in-house. How can you actually make use of it to serve your clients more efficiently and more effectively? And what about those firms that are somewhere in the middle, not quite big enough to be competing or, or maybe soon not able to compete at the highest levels um, or, or maybe a little smaller than that? What do you, what do you think in, in the middle of the, the firm size, firm business market, uh, what's left yeah. for them? 
So those firms, I think, as I was saying earlier, face a lot of challenges. For them, I think the things they need to do are, one, specialize and relatedly to figure out how to build their brand around that specialization. So if you're not going to be a large, full-service, multinational firm, and you're not going to be a boutique or a solo who has that individual personal touch, you need to basically say, okay, we are this mid-sized firm, but we are really, really awesome at health law, or we are really, really awesome at uh, ERISA class actions or whatever it is. You just need to find an area and own it. I think it's very hard to be a general full service law firm where your capabilities are just kind of in the middle. Uh, it's a little bit like, I would say, either go big or go specialized. So I recently read that the one thing that an interviewer is supposed to ask at the end of every interview is, is there any question that you wish I would have asked you? Ha! Huh, that is a that is a good uh, technique. Certainly, one that that uh, interviewers uh, do a lot. No, I think we've uh, nothing really uh, comes to mind. I feel like we've had a pretty thorough, wide ranging conversation. Well, David Latt, thank you so much for being with us today. You can find David Latt's novel Supreme Ambitions on Amazon, and we'll make sure and link it from the show notes. And you can read uh, his ongoing commentary on law practice and the law at abovethelaw.com. David, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me, Sam. This episode of the Lawyerist Podcast is brought to you by Ruby Receptionists. Ruby answered the phones for my law practice for a couple of years. And here's the thing. When I was answering the phone, I was often distracted. I might be in the middle of reading a brief that pissed me off from opposing counsel uh, or dealing with something stressful or that I really needed to focus on. And so the phone rings, it's an interruption, kind of drives me crazy, and I'm never at my best. That's not the face I wanted to put forward to clients. So when I got Ruby, the whole thing changed for two reasons. First, because uh, the ladies at Ruby are fantastic on the phone. They're cheerful, they're friendly, they're helpful. And what happened is that people would regularly say, wow, I just had such a great experience with your receptionist. And second, because my instructions were that anybody who asked for me by name should be put straight through to me. The way that happens is it's a soft transfer, meaning the first person I hear from is a receptionist from Ruby who says, Hi, this is so-and-so from Ruby Receptionists. I've got so-and-so on the phone, and they're calling about this. Should I put them through? And so I have the opportunity to say, no, tell them to call this person. Tell them I'll call them back later. Please take a message. Or, sure, put them through, and I'll talk to them. And just that little bit of buffer meant that by the time I got on the phone, I was prepared for the conversation, and I could be in a much better mood. Hiring somebody to pick up my phones and answer my phones for me that is as friendly and professional and helpful as Ruby was one of the best things I did for my practice and for my sanity and productivity. So you should check out Ruby, and you've got no reason not to because it's free for 14 days. And if you check them out by going to callruby.com slash lawyerist, they will also waive the setup fee should you decide to stick with them. And if you sign up for the trial, they will take good care of you, and I'm pretty sure you will want to hire them in the end. 
So go to callruby.com slash lawyerist and find out for yourself. To make sure you catch next week's episode of The Lawyerist Podcast, subscribe to The Lawyerist Podcast in iTunes or in your favorite podcast app. You can listen to it at lawyerist.com slash podcast. You can also subscribe to The Lawyerist Insider, our weekly newsletter. Just go to lawyerist.com and look down the sidebar or click on newsletter up at the top. We'll remind you where to find the podcast whenever we release a new episode. Thanks for listening.